Now, tonight, as we go through Titus, we're going to cover chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, which speak of the marks of a godly young man. Last time we were together, uh, last Thursday night, we spoke of the seven marks of a godly young woman. Uh, Tonight, it's the men's turn. And I wanted to last week uh, have a testimonial, and I didn't get to because I flew in from California, taught Thursday night, and flew right back out at 7 the next morning, so I didn't get it all organized. But uh, tonight, I I thought it would be good to blend uh, a word of testimony as well as a teaching from the Bible. And... uh, Every now and then you'll find a young couple or a young person who has decided to set certain parameters in his or her life uh, because that's the conviction of their heart. And it's a decision to grow. And those decisions accentuate and accelerate their own personal growth. And uh, one such young man uh, I've asked to come and share tonight a little bit of uh, his own decision and uh, testimony. I just thought I saw him over here a second ago. Eric, where are you? Eric? Eric, you like ran away. Well, anyway, here he comes. I guess he thought I wasn't going to call on him, and so he slipped toward the back, right? Did you? Ha! You. Eric Larson, give him a hand. The commitment that I've made just so you guys know, was a commitment that I made a year ago, roughly, not to get involved with any females for a year. Many people look at that as, well, he had a problem with the flesh. He had a problem with lust or whatever it was. When in reality, the reason why I did it was because I wanted to know God greater. I wanted to know him in a greater capacity so that I could develop patterns in my relationship with my future wife. But that took a long time before that ever happened. In fact, I had to get saved first. And I can remember coming four years ago roughly to this Bible study on a Sunday night. And my friend and I, we'd always kind of sit by the agape boxes so we could lay our heads and sleep through the Bible study. And I remember... One time in particular, when I first saw Skip, I saw him and I thought, what is a blonde-haired surfer doing teaching a Bible study? The church has hit rock bottom. They can't even afford a priest. (laughs) And that night, I came forward and got saved. But to tell you the truth, I can't even remember what I said. I don't remember the sinner's prayer except by now having said it later on or hearing Skip say it. Really what God had to do is he had to take me through a breaking. I had to come to the end of my rope before I would ever admit my need for Jesus Christ. And it took roughly a two-year span for that to happen. I was your typical, arrogant, young, egotistical male that hung out at the bars I used alcohol in many cases as liquid courage for me to pick up on girls. I got involved with drugs just for curiosity's sake. And in many cases, my weak spot was females because of that 
interaction that I had with drugs. That was two years ago. Really what happened was God had to take me to a pinnacle, to a point where I would admit my need. And I can remember it happening two years ago roughly now on St. Patrick's Day. I was at Bennigan's, a bar, with a friend of mine. He was a liquor salesman, so I had no red tape. I could get whatever I wanted. And that night, well, just to give you an idea of what a heathen I was, I went to Bennigan's listening to Fernando Ortega's Lord, I Want to Be Like Jesus. I drove out of the bar that night and got in a roadblock. This would be DWI number three for someone who wasn't even 19 years old yet. God got me out of that situation. Roughly a week later, I ended up coming to church and I heard a verse in Matthew chapter 11 that we're all familiar with. It's when Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. So I went home that night. I went to bed and I thought, God, you have this promise there for me that says you'll take this burden away, these bad relationships, this alcohol problem. You know what? I'm going to take you up on your offer. And from that day forward, God delivered me from that. And he gave me literally a new heart. He gave me a heart to know him, a heart to serve him, and he packed my life full of godly men and women who were ready and willing to invest time in me. One couple, Randy and Lisa Davis, would stay up until 2 and 3 in the morning answering whatever question I had for them. They were ready and willing to devote time to my life. And in many cases, I view it kind of like that Superman movie. Remember how Lois Lane fell off the building and she got about this far from the ground before she cracked her head? And Superman came down, grabbed her right there, and put her on a solid foundation. That's what God did for me. He put me on that solid foundation. And it's just as the scripture says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. But in many cases, I think the biggest Christian tragedy today are those people who come to Christ and they say, I gave up sex for God. I gave up drugs. I gave up alcohol, money, materialism, all for God. I came to God with nothing. And he gave me everything. I came to God burnt out. I came to God burnt out, bummed out, wondering if there was any happiness to be had in life. And he gave me eternal life. In reality, I can relate to what Paul said to the Philippian church. He said, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish compared to the gain of Christ. Literally, I count that... Rubbish as dog poop. I count it as feces. I count it as nothing compared to what Christ has given me. And then later on, after 40 years of ministry, in a Roman prison, he said, I don't count myself as having apprehended. This one thing I do, though, I look, I forget what's behind, I look to what's ahead, and I press towards the mark. That's really my life verse. Forget the sin because it's washed in the blood. Now I look forward to what's in store for me, for me to live now as Christ. And I think it was Dwight L. Moody who said one time, the world has yet to see what God can do through one man who is totally devoted to him. I, by the grace of God, will be that man. That's what he said. Now let's take that and turn that towards us. Who wants to be that?
How many people want to be that next person that will give up their old life, that will give up the tragedy, the sin, and look and press towards that mark of seeing Jesus face to face? If you want to do it, I remind you of the words of Paul that said, run in such a manner that you might obtain the prize. Thank you. Bless you, my son. Some of the... uh, Where'd he go? Eric, if you can hear me, some of the young gals are wondering when the year's up. All right. Titus chapter 2, verse 6. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Paul here basically tells Titus to instruct young men and to be an example to the young men. Now, Titus, no doubt, was a young man himself, as was Timothy when Paul wrote First and Second Timothy to him. Both young men. That's why he wrote to Timothy, let no one despise your youth. Writing to a young man, he says, both exhort and exemplify to these young men a godly lifestyle that is irreproachable. Now, as we've already mentioned, Paul goes through young and old in this paragraph. There's some directions for older saints. There's some directions for younger saints. And I think to the wisdom of God in Paul's life, he doesn't delineate what old and young is. It's just those who are older, those who are younger, and I think you know who you are. Uh, Some of you are in between and you're wondering perhaps, but... Most of us know exactly who we are. Um, What is it exactly to be a man? That is, in this society, anywhere from the 1960s to the 1990s, a real critical question. There's all sorts of ideas as to what true manhood is all about. Now, I'm going to probably sound a lot like my parents tonight, You know, we always don't want to do that when we grow up, and it seems that in many ways we are, but things do change a little bit when you get older. Not that I'm an old person, but I do have a few gray hairs now, now that I'm almost 40. Um, It is interesting, living in this culture, and really living from the 60s and watching the revolution in the 70s and the 80s and 90s, it seems like there is such a gender confusion In this society, now, if you've ever traveled outside of America, you find that it's not that big of a problem. But if you've traveled outside of America and you come back, it's like, what's going on here? You remember the day when men were men? You could tell by looking. It was the women who wore the makeup. It was the men who led in relationships. Today, 
it's really in this culture politically correct to just push the envelope. And I think there is sort of, it's sort of popular to lose one's masculinity, unfortunately. Um, People magazine featured an interesting dialogue between a psychologist and his young nephew, and he asked his young nephew this question. This was in People magazine a few years back. He said, is Michael Jackson a man or a woman? The boy said both. Isn't that a revealing answer for, I think he was a seven-year-old? There's such this blending of gender. Both. And so... People wonder, young men as they grow up wonder, what is it to be a man? Is it the traditional role of the Arnold Schwarzenegger or, you know, um, the John Wayne, the independent Mr. Macho, or is it the sensitive man of the 90s to get in touch with your feminine side? There's all sorts of people with so many different voices as to what a man ought to be. And I think it's a warped view of what manhood is today. It's warped. I say that because just look around, see how many men have walked out of relationships with their wives and their children. How many see a woman as someone to conquer and then on to the next one. Many of whom are incapable of having long-term meaningful relationships. They yearn for them, they long for them, and they're incapable, it seems, of establishing them and then continuing them. And so what are the marks of a man, especially a godly man, and in this case, a godly young man? The position of a man in our culture is further muddled these days by a whole new line of thinking. You may have heard of it if you read Time magazine. It's known as evolutionary psychology, put out by a guy named Robert Wright, who wrote a few months back, August, almost a year ago, actually, 1994, in the cover of Time magazine, on evolutionary psychology. He said, quote, The human mind, like any other organ, is designed for the purpose of transmitting genes to the next generation. The feelings and thought it creates are best understood in these terms. And so he says, Getting your genes into the next generation is the ultimate purpose of life. That's sort of his premise. He goes on to speak about mating habits, or what he calls breeding strategies, and says, men are thus naturally promiscuous and sexually indiscriminate. It is to their genetic advantage to impregnate as many females as possible during their lifetime, as this optimizes their chances of passing their genetic heritage on to subsequent generations. His contention, along with others is that there is this promiscuous impulse put there by nature so that, there, they say, is there, there's this gene. It's in the genetics. And a man can't help himself. He comes home, honey, I can't help it. I've got this gene that makes me promiscuous. I've just got to pass my genes on to the next generation. And that's not Levi's either he's talking about. And so, since I have this natural proclivity to get my genes to the next generation, I'm not responsible for my action. I've had, you know, he might have had uh, several flings with women, he might say, but according to this guy, it's just 
part of the evolutionary design because he sees man as simply an animal. Of course, in this case, a man would be acting very much like an animal. There has been, there is a confusion in American culture, especially Western civilization, as to the role of the man and the woman. It's very, very confusing. It's been pushed by a unisex philosophy. It's been pushed by feminism. It's been pushed by the gay movement and a num number of other movements. By the way, it's nothing new. When Paul wrote the New Testament, letters to the early church, especially Corinth and others, he was writing against a very similar background, A, of marital promiscuity. Uh, the Romans were known and the Greeks were known for having many sexual flings. Some of the Roman emperors were very promiscuous and homosexuality was rampant. William Barclay, in giving comment on this, speaks about the ancient bad role models and their involvement in homosexuality and others. Uh, he said, quote, Even so great a man as Socrates practiced it, Plato's dialogue, the symposium, is always said to be one of the greatest works on love in the world, but its subject is not natural but unnatural love. Fourteen out of the fifteen Roman emperors practiced this unnatural vice. At this very time of Paul's writing, Nero was emperor. He had taken a boy called Sporus and had him castrated. He then married him with a full marriage ceremony and took him home in a procession to his palace and lived with him as his wife. With an incredible viciousness, Nero had also married a man called Pythagoras and called him his husband. When Nero was eliminated and Otho came to the throne, one of the first things he did was to take possession of Sporus. Much later, the emperor Hadrian's name was associated with a Bithynian youth called Antinius. He lived with him inseparably, and when he died, he deified him and covered the world with his statues and immortalized his sin by calling a star after him. In this particular vice... In the time of the early church, the world was lost to shame. There can be little doubt that this was one of the main causes of its degeneracy and the final collapse of its civilization. So William Barclay paints a picture and he says, when Paul was writing these admonitions to young men and young women in the Roman Empire, it's because the background and their culture was very, very open sexually. The idea of the movements we have today, even feminism, was even more advanced in the Roman culture than it is in the Western culture of today. With that culture in mind, Paul the Apostle wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 6, and he said, quote, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Past tense. That's important. Not, and such are some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. It seems that Satan 
exercises a special kind of diligence, a special kind of attack toward the young men of any culture, of any society, knowing that they're supposed to be the head of the home, the head of the family. It's to warp their thinking. It's to hinder their position before God. It seems like he's just working overtime, especially with young men. How do I know this? Because I'm a man. And in many ways I'm young. In many ways I'm kind of at that in-between stage. But I know what it's like to face these things. I, along with many of you, have been through them and still are going through them. Now, in Judaism, a woman was considered a woman. A girl passed from girl to womanhood at age 12 and one day. She was bat mitzvahed. She became a daughter of the commandment. A boy, by age 13 and one day, became a gadol, an adult. He passed from boyhood to manhood. And when he was bar mitzvahed, a son of the commandment, he received through that special rite of passage a new responsibility. He could read the law. He could read the scrolls publicly. And he was liable for his own actions. Did you know that up until age 13, if a kid goofed up and got himself in trouble with the law, his dad was in trouble? Because after all, his dad should be raising him. His dad's responsible for him. But at age 13, it's like the father in a special ceremony goes, It's in the synagogue, and there is that conferring and acknowledging of, I'm not responsible for you. You're now 13, and one day you are responsible before God, and you're responsible also in civil matters of the law. Now, unlike our culture, there was a rite of passage for a young man where a father and a spiritual figure took that young man and said, Okay, it's your turn. The mantle is now passed. You are an adult and we confer responsibility on you through this special ceremony. It's one thing I think is lacking in this culture, rites of passage like that, where a child is given in that kind of a manner that acknowledgement of responsibility in adulthood from the parents and from the spiritual community. And so in the Hebrew culture, there was the designation, there was the role modeling by the parents, and... The scripture, the Hebrew scripture, is filled with instructions for the young man. I could go on for the rest of the study giving you scriptures, but a couple notable ones. In Psalm 119, verse 9, How can a young man cleanse his ways or keep his way pure? By taking heed according to your word. One of the best injunctions found by somebody who's older to a younger man is found by Solomon in the Proverbs. He spends many chapters... And he talks about what his dad taught him and what he is teaching his child about being pure and wise before God. Many, many good principles are found in the book of Proverbs on how to be a wise young man. Then in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, as this guy did it all, he had so much money, he had concubines, he had rampant sex, actually, he tried alcoholism, and he tried so many things in his life. Toward the end of his life, he gives this final nugget of wisdom to the next generation. In Ecclesiastes 12, he said, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. 
before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Well, let's jump right into our text and see that the first mark, according to my outline of this text, is a soberness of mind or a soberness in mind. Verse 6, likewise exhort the young man to be sober-minded. If you have a New International Version, it says self-controlled. It's a better translation, I think, perhaps. The NAS says be sensible. The idea is this. Young man, get control of your mind. Wise up. Grow up. Make good choices now. Lay the track down now so that the train of the rest of your life can flow upon the decisions that you make today before, as Solomon said, it's too late. Now, I think that youth has many dangers. I think every age has many dangers. But there are certain dangers that are particular to a young man. And again, I think I can speak to this because of personal experience. One is pride. I think that's probably everybody's problem at one point or another, but it seems that there's this particular brashness about a young man, a know-it-all attitude. You know, he gets to be 16 and he knows everything. Of course, when he's 30, he realizes he didn't know what he thought he knew, but there comes a point where there's this kind of arrogance and it's understood because you want to be independent. You need to be responsible. You need to make your own choices. But sometimes it can come off as sort of a pride. Pride is the oldest sin in the book. Uh, Pride is the sin that filled hell with its first inhabitants, Satan and his minions, who wanted to be like the Most High and fell from that position. We know that pride was the first sin in the Garden of Eden. Adam wasn't happy with his lot. Adam and Eve sinned against God, and in their pride listened to the devil rather than just resting in God's provision. And so pride is a problem with every age group, particularly, though, I think, young men. Pride can cause you to reject the wisdom of those who have gone before. I know this. I remember, I'm sure my mom remembers the grimace on my face every time my dad was going to tell me a bit of advice from his growing up. And I think probably every parent and child goes through this. When he'd sit down and goes, now, Skip, when I was a boy, and I go, oh, here it comes. Pride can cause you to shut down and not receive godly advice, good advice, advice of the years of those who have gone before. Um, Would you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 12, and let's see a case. I referred to this not long ago, but we never did read it. 1 Kings chapter 12. It's the story of the son of Solomon, interestingly enough, Rehoboam. And uh, he's a young guy. Dad isn't around any longer. And so he has to decide how to run the kingdom. What decisions will he make? And And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. And so it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, heard it. He was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt, that they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and this heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. 
So he said to them, Depart for three days, then come back to me. And the people departed. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived and said, How do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him saying, If you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the advice which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. He said to them, What advice do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father has put on us? The young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you should speak to the people who, you have, spoke, who have spoken to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips. I will chastise you with scourges. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day. The king had directed, saying, Come back to me on the third day. And the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips. I will chastise you with scourges. So the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of events was from the Lord, that he might fulfill the word which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Now when all of Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. The result, the kingdom split never to be patched together again. Yes, God gave a prophet a promise that this would happen. But the cause of it was the pride of a young man who listened only to his peers and not to the advice of those who had gone before him. So, Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or sit in the seat of the scornful or walk in the way of sinners. His delight is in the law of the Lord. In His law does He meditate day and night. I think... Every young man could learn a lesson from one of the young men that came to Job. His name was Elihu. It says in Job 32, 6 and 7, Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzzite, said, I am young in years, and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know, for I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. Much heartache could be avoided if young men would swallow their pride and say, teach me, feed me. I want to learn. I want your experience. I need the years that you have walked. I don't want to reinvent the wheel. Give me good advice. Probably all of us remember that tragic and fateful day some years back when the space shuttle Challenger was launched into space. And from the viewpoint of Earth, through the cameras, we watched it explode and disintegrate into millions of pieces and how shocked we were. And they investigated the causes for it. 
And there was, of course, some errors in calculation. There were some materials problems in assembling the materials. But I found an article from the New York Times that said, the ultimate cause of the space shuttle disaster was pride. A group of top managers failed to listen carefully to the warnings of those down the line who were concerned about the operational reliability of certain parts of the booster rocket under conditions of abnormal stress. The people in charge were confident that they knew best and that they should not change the launch schedules. They were wrong. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, if anyone thinks he knows something, If any man thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. It's the attitude of, I know it all. I don't need to be taught anymore. I've grown enough. So pride is one of the particular problems of youth that has to be held in self-control. And we have the reins to do that. One of the gifts of the Spirit is self-control. Another particular danger of young men, I would say, besides pride, is pleasure. Now, don't get me wrong. Who doesn't like to have fun? It's not like we go around looking to be miserable, wanting to live in a perpetual state of bummerhood. Everybody likes to enjoy life and have fun, but it seems there is an age where it becomes the only pursuit in life the pursuit of pleasure. As Paul wrote to young Timothy, he said, men will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God and overindulgence in it. It seems particularly suited as a warning to young men. Remember, Jesus gave a parable of two sons, one older, one younger, and the younger said, give me my inheritance now. And he went out and wasted it on riotous living until he came to his senses and he said, I've got to go back to my father and see if he will forgive me. So young man, what are you living for? Is your pursuit pleasure? Is your pursuit gratification? You know, in our Constitution we have written life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know what I found? Happiness is never found by pursuit. Happiness is never found by direct pursuit. It's a byproduct of a relationship with the living God. At the right hand of God, there are pleasures forevermore. So if you're pursuing self-gratification, you're not going to find it. You're going to end up very, very miserable. And I commend to you again the book of Ecclesiastes. Read a man seasoned in experience and what he writes. Everything is vanity, he said. I've tried it all. It's all chasing after the wind. Oscar Wilde, who was a pretty famous author, died in 1900s, lived to the ripe old age of 46. That's all. He died at 46 years of age. He said, The gods have given me almost everything, but I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately went to the depths in search for a new sensation. What the paradox was to me in the sphere of thought, perversity became to me in the sphere of passion. I grew careless of the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me and passed on. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber one has someday to cry aloud from the housetop. I ceased to be lord over myself. In other words, I lost self-control. I was no longer the captain of my soul and I did not know it. 
I allowed pleasure to dominate me, and I ended in a horrible disgrace. God has given you your body. It's a tremendous asset. It's a tremendous tool. Your body makes a wonderful servant, but it makes a horrible master. And when you become enslaved to its passions, there's no freedom at all. It's just continual grind of slavery. That's why Paul wrote to young Timothy, and he said, flee youthful lusts. Flee them. Pursue godliness. Peter, the apostle, talked about fleeing and pursuing the lusts of the flesh and serving God wholeheartedly. Sin can destroy. Living for pleasure, sin, that kind of sin, can destroy emotionally and spiritually the person from the inside out. It was Solomon who warned his son. It seemed like his son didn't really take much heed to it, but he warned his son about the pleasures of life, the pursuit especially of sensual sexual pleasures that will eventually destroy him. He said, many have ended up in despair. Many kings have lost going down that path. Then, toward the end of the book, King Lemuel, remembering the words of his mother, the sayings of King Lemuel, an oracle his mother taught him, O my son, O son of my womb, O son of my vows, do not spend your strength on women, your vigor on those things that will ruin kings. Now, let's look at it from a New Testament perspective for just another moment. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians. So just go left a few pages till you get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's a very straightforward statement. He's writing to a young church filled with young people. Chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. I have every now and then people say, what's God's will for my life? Well, here's part of it. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, or that you get holier and holier as the days go on, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. It is God's will for you to be sexually, morally pure, something you never have to pray about or wonder. So if you're in a dilemma tonight and you're thinking, well, you know, my girlfriend and I are wondering if we should move in together. We're praying about it. Don't pray about it. You don't need to pray about it. It's an insult to God to pray about that. The will of God for your life is that you remain sexually, morally pure and that you don't leave even a margin of error for people to think that you are immoral. You avoid even the appearance of evil. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Hey, God created sex. But that which is God-given must be God-governed. How do I do it? Well, it says in verse 3, abstain. What? Abstain? What, is God trying to cramp my style? No, He's trying to save your life. Things like sexually transmitted diseases, things like torn relationships, broken emotions, a future that you could reap 
in that regard. God loves you enough to save you from that. That's why he says it's his will that you would abstain from sexual immorality. See, sex created by God is like fire. It's wonderful in a fireplace. It gives warmth. But it's not too good on the carpet. Take it out of the fireplace. Here's a fire. I'm going to put it right here in the living room rug. It'll destroy your house. Sexual passion in the right context of marriage is wonderful. It's pure. The marriage bed is undefiled. Outside of that, it is wrong. It is dirty. It is sinful. And the Bible says abstain. Pure and simple. Don't have to pray about that one. Pure and simple. And that's all over the Bible. And you think, oh man, that's tough. Oh wow. Well, let me tell you something. You can do it. Well, how do you know I can do it? Verse 4. It's all in the Bible. We thank God for the Bible. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Self-control is in view here. The idea is you can do it. Paul said among the gifts of the Spirit is gentleness and self-control. Gentleness and self-control. Example, Joseph. What a great example. Did you see the movie on television that reflected pretty accurately the biblical story? How Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him day after day. I mean, she was very aggressive. She basically said, Joseph, come to bed with me. No subtle hints here. And one time she grabbed his clothes and said, Lie with me. Nobody was around. Everybody was out of the house. He was well out of Israeli territory, so all of the godly influences were gone. Hey, that's the place to compromise. He said, How can I sin against God? Or my master Potiphar, you're his wife. God's entrusted me with this position. And he kept saying no every single day. And eventually when she grabbed his cloak, he didn't care. He left his cloak in her hands and streaked out of the house without anything on. He'd rather lose his garment than lose his purity. And so he just booked it and ran for it. Now it begins in the mind. Sober-minded, self-control. The idea is the mind, the choices you make with the mind. What you think about is important. What you allow yourself to see is very, very important. Don't buy into Dr. Ruth's philosophy. She's telling people all the time on, in books and in articles, and I hear now in videos that it's okay to fantasize. There's nothing wrong with that. She says, it's only in the mind, so enjoy it. It's only in the mind, no problem. Well, tell that to David, who had a good look one night at Bathsheba. It was only in his mind. He probably thought, I can handle it. I'm an adult. Okay, she's beautiful. I'm admiring God's creation, that's all. Eventually, he was in bed. He was in the sack with that gal. Because what you think and fantasize, the more you do it, the less sensitive you become to just seeing it. And to get the same buzz, the same gratification, there's that need to graduate to higher levels. Usually a fantasy, but eventually of action. Sober-minded. This is an example and a mark of a godly young man. Now we get to verse 7, and after a... uh, 
soberness of mind. Secondly, he talks about a specimen and lifestyle. And what I mean by that is being a good example. And he uses Titus as uh, the example for that, but it's really to all young men. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. Be a specimen in your lifestyle. Pride, pleasure, and I would add a third problem to young men, and that is peer pressure. Those three P's, you can remember them. Pride, pleasure, and peer pressure. At a certain age, when a child grows up, what his peers think become more important than what their parents think, and it's very sad if it's more important than what God thinks. The peer pressure can be absolutely out of control in some cases. And so, be an example, Titus. Tell the young man and then be an example to the young man because you being an example to them will help them to be an example then to others. It's sad, but few people think for themselves because of peer pressure. We don't want to say anything that will, you know, just not sit right with somebody. You just got to really walk lightly. And it's refreshing to find someone who just says it, does it, lives it without the fear of man. The fear of man, the Bible says, brings a snare. Matthew Mead, who was a Puritan, wrote a book called The Almost Christian Discovered. The Almost Christian Discovered. It's a book basically about all the different ways people feign religious activity outwardly, and they're almost a Christian, but they're really not. And in it he says something you've heard before. It is very easy for a dead fish to float downstream, but it takes a strong, live one to swim upstream against the current. I think of Saul, the first king of Israel. He was the spineless leader. Spineless. He was a wimp. He wanted the adulation of the crowd, but he wouldn't make a decision that was biblically correct. He wanted to make political correct decisions. He wanted the people to like him, and, you know, he's the king. He hated, after all, when people were saying, Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his tens of thousands. I hate that song. And the women are singing it to make it worse. He came back from the battle of the Amalekites. And the prophet of the Lord was there and said, Why did you disobey God? Oh, I praise God. I, I didn't disobey God. Hey, I brought these things back. Yeah, but you didn't fully carry out the commandment of God. Why did you do that? God told you to wipe out the Amalekites. You didn't do it. He said, Because I feared the people, I obeyed their voice. Because I feared the people, I obeyed their voice. What about Herod? Because he knew that people were around him at his birthday party. He didn't want to lose face with them. And so he allowed John the Baptist to get his head chopped off so that his friends would think well of him. Peer pressure. Very, very dangerous. And a young man is especially susceptible. Now, I've got to say at the same time, there's beautiful godly examples of people who in the midst of severe peer pressure didn't bend. Joseph, we just mentioned. Daniel was another one. He was a teenager in Babylon, separated totally from a godly influence, and yet Danley, Daniel, Danley, what am I saying Danley for? Well, maybe that was his nickname at home. Little Danley <laughs> decided, purposed in his heart, not to defile himself with the king's food. 
And that faithfulness started as a teenager and carried all the way until we see him in the latter chapters of the book when he's 86 years old and he's still very faithful to God because he set the pattern early. He set the pattern and became an example at a very early age. Now, examples are needed. And I just want to challenge young men. You have great potential. I've already seen so many young men around this fellowship that I look at with great admiration because they are strong. The Word of God abides in them. They make decisions to follow Jesus Christ. They make decisions morally in the parameters of their life, decisions that people gasp at. How could you do that? But they do it. And I admire them for it. You have the opportunity to be a great example, and we need those examples today desperately. Quit being a dead fish floating downstream, doing what everybody else is doing. Big deal. Anybody can do that stuff. Stand up and be counted. Say, I'm going to go the opposite direction. I'm going to go the opposite direction. Instead of following the example of Michael Jackson, Madonna, role models of some today, Kurt Corbain. The Associated Press released this not too long ago. In 10 minutes, some disturbing things will happen to American youth. Within a 10-minute time, 10 kids will attempt suicide. 105 kids will quit school. 618 high school seniors will smoke marijuana. 20 girls in 10 minutes between the ages of 15 years old and 19 years old will become pregnant. Youths from age 12 to age 20 will constitute 57% of all the serious arrests in the United States of America. Well, I tell you what, we need people who says, we'll say, I'll stand up, I'll be counted, I'll go upstream. I'll tell you how gratifying that will be. The peace of God will flood your heart, and when you make those even smaller decisions to stand up, you'll find that the strength comes even more and more as the days go on, to make even stronger choices for God. Finally, let's look at verse 8, and we'll close here. We have five minutes to go. The third mark of a godly young man is soundness of speech. Verse 8. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Now let me read that to you in the Living Bible. I found it very enlightening. Your conversation should be so sensible and logical that anyone who wants to argue will be ashamed of himself because there won't be anything to criticize in anything you say. Wouldn't it be great to see young men like that? Instead of, uh, huh, huh. <laughs> Beavis and Meathead, forget his name. Learn how to use your tongue and learn how to hold it. Soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. Paul said the same thing to Timothy. He said, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believer in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Let me just say, I'm so proud of the young men that I see around this fellowship. I remember the time when I was the youngest member on my staff, pastoring at 25 years of age. And everybody said, gosh, you're just young to be a pastor. And everybody else was so much older. Now the tables have 
been turned a bit. And I see young guys coming up in the ministry who want to serve the Lord with all their hearts. And, and I know the mantle has been passed. I know that they're going to be future pastors, future leaders, godly husbands. I look at them and I go, all right, man, it's caught. It's, it's sunk in. They're there. Filled with wisdom, filled with example and godly speech that cannot be condemned. Yet, let's keep it up. And let's continually invest in the future. Let's invest in kids that haven't quite reached the young men status, but a couple years you'll turn around and those little kids are going to be young men. Let's invest lots of time in their future, in their behavior, in their relationship with God, because God has given us children, whether you're a parent or you work in the, or you just come to the fellowship. There's children over there that need your input. I found a little article that said, Once upon a time there was a church staff looking for teachers and children for the preschoolers and the youth, teachers for their children. And some adults said, I don't want to leave the sweet fellowship and study of my adult class. But the drug pushers on the street said, Not even the threat of jail will keep me from working with your children. And some adults said, I could never give the time required to plan and go to teachers' meetings. But the pusher and the porno book dealer and the movie producer said, We'll stay open whatever hours necessary every day to win the minds of the kids. And some adults said, I'm unsuited, I'm untrained, I'm unable to work with children, preschoolers, or youth. But the movie producer said, we'll study, we'll survey, we'll spend millions to produce whatever turns kids on. And when Sunday came, the children came to their classes, and no one was there except the church staff going from one room to the other, trying to assure them that someone would surely come to teach them some Sunday soon. But no one ever came. And the young children soon quit coming because they had gone to listen to others who did care about the things they did and what went into their minds. It's a battle for the minds, the self-control of the young people, not just of America, of our church. Of our church. You've got a big world who's against you. They have a value system. They have a moral code. And if you're a biblical Christian, everything you are about is in direct contradiction to them. You ready to be a rebel? I don't mean be rebellious against the law or society because we're to obey the laws of the land, but to be a, a rebel and a radical against the moral values, or I should say the absence thereof in this country. A lot of people are going to get mad at you if you take a stand for Jesus. A lot of people are going to be mad at you if you take a stand for your family. Let them. Let them. You don't owe anything to them except to love them for Christ's sake and share the gospel with them. But you owe a lot to those children who are around you. And young men, pick up the mantle and go for it. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ for your impact, your input on the lives of young men and women in this community. How pleased we are, Lord, to look with admiration to these that you are raising up into ministry and to leadership and to being husbands. Father, I pray that you'd raise up even more, even more, who would be like Joseph, who would be like Daniel, who would be like Titus, who would be like Timothy. God, give us good role models so that you don't have to look around for trashy ones. Lord, help us in what we think about to control our minds and our activities, 
what we see and what we hear. And thank you, Father, for this group of people, the family of God, who come and really want to make a difference, help them too in their daily lives. Touch people in this community through us. In Jesus' name, amen.